Welcome. Welcome to a new podcast of Kuno. And Kuno is the platform of humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands. My name is Peter Heinsen. This podcast is the first of a short series on wicked dilemmas in the world of humanitarian practice. And this series started with a discussion, a discussion between Humanity House in The Hague and Kuno on such of these hot topics, such as are international NGOs really willing to hand over power to local NGOs? Or what if humanitarian actions are used as an instrument in armed conflicts? Or thirdly, what is more important, high moral standards are getting results. By this discussion, a series of public debates was born, a series organized by Humanity House in Kuno. And this first one will focus on the moral standards or the results. A reflection of a debate in The Hague in October 2018. This episode is framed Idealism versus Pragmatism and is dedicated to the way human rights organizations and humanitarian organizations did deal with the migration crisis in 2015 and 2016. And this discussion started with John Dahlhuizen. During the crisis, Dahlhuizen was director of Amnesty International's Europe and Central Asia program and he was strongly opposing the EU-Turkey deal on migration. After the migration crisis, however, Dahlhuizen left Amnesty International and he joined the European Stability Initiative of Gerald Knaus, one of the main architects of exactly this deal. So from a strong criticizer of the Turkey deal, he made a shift and became senior fellow of the organization that was one of the main architects of this EU-Turkey deal. This public debate has turned into two podcasts named Pragmatism versus Realism. In the second part, some 30 minutes, you will hear the most vivid parts of a discussion between Dahlhuizen and two representatives of humanitarian organizations. And vivid it was. In this first part, although some 30 minutes, you will hear the introduction by Dahlhuizen, explaining the reason behind his new position. This introduction preceded the debate of part two. So now you will hear John Dahlhuizen. My very large thanks to, to Humanity House and Kuno for, for organizing this, this debate. Uh, I think it's, a, it's an issue, certainly, that I've been thinking about for a, for a very long time. And I think many in my situation in a broader rights humanitarian organizations have been thinking about with increasing alarm over the last few years, where you've seen the kind of strategic challenges that a rights movement face has shifted from what it was really for the first 60, 70 years of its post-war existence, from attack, from claiming rights, to defense, to keeping the ones that you've already got. And the starting point for my reflection is really that this fundamental shift in dynamic requires also some shift in the strategic thinking and some shift in the moral calculus that a rights movement and humanitarian organizations are are applying. Uh, I, I get that many in this audience might prefer an honest cynic to the pragmatist who dresses their compromises in the clothes of righteousness. Uh, and if that's your starting point, I think, well, fair enough. But, but hear me out, because I want to try and present what I think are really sharp dilemmas. These are really difficult 
questions. These are difficult conceptually. These are difficult psychologically for anyone who's really committed to making the world a better place, anyone who has any idealism at all. So I want to try and do four things, and I, I hope I can do this in about 20, 20 minutes. Now you tell me to shut up and move on. Uh, I want to describe the current situation with respect to the migration uh, issue very quickly. Then I want to explain why I think that the core body of asks that NGOs, whether humanitarian or human rights organizations, the core things they're asking for, they cannot get. Then I want to outline an achievable, humane alternative. So what else I think could be, uh, could be done and why I think it's okay. And then I want to explain why I think NGOs should back it. And then this fourth will lead me on to some more general reflections about idealism, pragmatism, and how to be the most effective idealistic activist with the challenges we have today. Uh, and I want to say, I mean, idealism versus pragmatism. And I want to suggest that this dichotomy is a, is a false one. You know, this assumption that to be a proper idealist, you must never ever compromise uh, and I, I think this is just wrong uh, I think it is morally wrong and I think it leads to strategic miscalculations that human beings suffer from uh, in the end so what I, I, I want to try and do is kind of set out a, a criteria for compromise that idealists can apply with good conscience let's call it the you know, a, a, a um, activist's guide to pragmatic idealism. And then there are two levels, right? You can agree with the framework and you can still disagree with how I applied in relation to the migration debate. Or you can just disagree with it all. That's also fine. Um, but the essence of the principle is this, and then I'll move on, but just to give you a sneak preview, is my view that an activist should compromise on the desirable on the outer limits of their ambitions, when doing this will help save the essential, the core. What does this require? It requires a willingness to distinguish between a core set of rights, a core set of values, let's call, call these your red line rights, and a periphery. Let's call these high line rights. Let's call these things that you would like. Uh, this is quite a difficult thing for an idealistic person to do, and it's doubly difficult for a human rights activist to do for a lot of conceptual reasons that I'll come to. The application of this formula also requires a willingness to make quite complex political judgments and accept the possibility of error. So there's moral hazard here. You can be wrong. You can try and do things for the right reasons and be wrong, and being wrong is a very duff call if you're an idealist, and that makes it really difficult. Uh, but Shying away from that kind of political analysis and applying this framework is, I think, an abdication of, of a profound moral responsibility. But anyway, I get ahead of myself. Let's come back to the, the migration debate uh, and, and look at what the situation is now. Uh, and there's essentially two places where this plays out, Central Mediterranean and the Aegean. The Central Mediterranean, as you all know, you have reduced search and rescue efforts, NGOs being hounded out of Mediterranean waters. You have deals with Libya, which is essentially subcontracting a, a pullback. 
This is kind of an indirect uh, uh, breach of a non-refoulement provision. You're pulling people back, paying people to pull them back to places where they're tortured, abused, extorted. Um, quite hardcore, I think, on any measure. Right? This is kind of deeply unacceptable. Then you have the Aegean, where you have appalling conditions for 10 to 13,000 people, truly appalling, shameful uh, conditions that endured for months at a time, if not longer for, for many, uh, before they eventually, most of them indeed, do find their way to a, a mainland. So you have a, a significantly reduced inflow. You have a significantly improved situation for Syrians in Turkey, if not other nationalities so much. It is, it is true. Uh, but all achieved with some pretty shocking conditions in, 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 in Greece. And a whole load of other consequences, knock-on or not, in Turkey that I'm sure others will, will, will refer to later. But the core thing that I want to draw attention to is that the status quo in Europe right now violates everything I think everyone in this room would agree is a red line. Non-refoulement, access to territory, search and rescue, basic humane conditions in reception centers. These are basic things. And they're all gone. They're all gone. And not only have they all gone, there's not a single mainstream political party in relevant countries that genuinely aspires to being in power that opposes them. Okay? That's a brute reality. And why? Because basically public opinion will not tolerate the indefinite continuation of a situation it witnessed in 2015, 16, 17. This, I think, sadly and you can contest this, is a brute fact. It's borne out in every single electoral result in Europe over this period. And it's borne out by the history of responses to similar migration movements over the last 20, 30 years, with one notable exception, being the Balkans. Um, Cuba, 94. Italy, 2008. Nauru, 2001. Nauru, 2012. Canary Islands, 2006. Italy, 2017, Germany, 2016. When numbers cross a threshold, which will be variable depending on that country, depending on prevailing norms, attitudes, lots of factors, societal empathy is not infinite. It is capped. It has a limit, and when that limit is reached, a society will accept closed borders done cruelly if they believe the alternative is open borders. This is a fact. This is a fact. And a return to the status quo ante is therefore not an option. And then let me look quickly at what NGOs are, are, are advocating for. And I mean, some will contest it, not quite this, not quite that. And I'm not going to deal with the open border advocate. Maybe some of you in this room sympathize with that position. Dare I say, I sympathize with position. I'm a son of an immigrant myself. Uh, but I'm going to try and deal with a slightly more sophisticated position that accepts in principle some idea of border control, some idea of return. Um, but as we'll see in practice, the things that are being advocated essentially amount in practice to, to an open border. But what are, So what are they? In the central Mediterranean and the cooperation with Libya, the Libyan Coast Guard, the Libyan authorities. Restore search and rescue allow NGO boats to operate. In Greece, NDU-Turkey deal, 
open the islands. The consequence of all this is a return to the situation in which people came in and basically stayed. Uh, The suggestion then is we will replace this system with more safe and legal routes. Good thing, unambiguously good thing. Doesn't address any of the reasons why anyone else was coming or any of the problem of of preventing them. And, And Dublin reform we will relocate, uh, redistribute the excess of arrivals in any point of entry more evenly across everyone. So we can't stop it. We will just distribute it as widely as as possible. Um, This, as I said, is essentially open borders. Let me give you just a couple of statistics. I'll try and keep this statistic light. Um, But... Let's take, why do I say this amounts to open borders? Because the reality of the European asylum system prior to 2014 is that no one ever got returned. Virtually no one who didn't get a claim to asylum was actually returned. So take Italy. Between 2014 and 2017, 27,404 people came from Senegal. Less than 800 received some form of protection. A lot of it humanitarian. Uh, 335 people were returned in that period. 335 people. Right Now, on an individual level, you can sympathize a great deal, and this correct human response is to sympathize a great deal with those who are subject liable to being returned. Uh, But that is not a functioning system. That is an open border system. And it is that system that is politically completely unsellable. The redistribution is presented as this kind of magic bullet, but more liberally distributing around the numbers generated by this fundamental reality doesn't actually solve anyone's problems. Not least because it has colossal political objections and will never get off the table. I mean, the entire Eastern Bloc of the EU will say no. But even in practice, the Dublin system before never worked anyway. Relocation didn't work. Moving people against their will between countries when the receiving state has no interest in receiving that person does not work. It never worked. It never worked in, in, in the EU. It's never worked in relation to third countries either. Uh, and, it, and it won't work now. So you've got a set of policies that don't address a problem, are completely unsellable, No political party can put these to an electorate, and no political party is putting them uh, to an electorate, at least ones that really hope to to still be in in power. So why are are, are many of the NGO community still persisting uh, with these? I think there are basically four reasons. One, they think, they genuinely believe that they can change public opinion. Secondly, some think that, well, public opinion will shift with the easing of economic anxieties. All this rise of populist movements and anti-immigrant agenda, desire to control borders, has actually got nothing to do with that at all. It's got everything to do with the fact that people are a little bit poor, a little bit anxious, uh, a little bit worried about their life, and don't want to sell, share a shrinking pot with any foreigners. Uh, And I think the third one argument is that "Ah, the numbers are now down. We're down to about 80,000 for, for this year. So the pressure's off. Can we all kindly go back to where we were before? And I think all these arguments are flawed. 
How you can see they're flawed is Nauru. Nauru is the system that the Australians set up to essentially prevent any boat people from arriving. They would intercept them, put them on an island in the middle of, of more or less nowhere, uh, and let them fester. Right? There would be no access to Australian waters at all. Uh, that was their solution, one that European leaders look at you know, admiringly and, and very worryingly. The point about Nauru is that it's a shithole. It is a proper shithole. Uh, and it is a system constructed to treat a small number of people very badly on purpose to discourage other people from coming. All right? And public opinion knows it. Everyone knows it but it's been bought. It's a totally accepted part of a political landscape. It was introduced by the, by the liberals, the right-wing party, in 2001. They got rid of it. And then the boat people started coming back, not in very large numbers. And it was then the Labour Party that reintroduced it, both ends of the political spectrum. Everyone knows it's shit, but it's there. It's totally accepted. Reports, you can publish as many as you want. It's not changing anyone's opinion. Uh, the fact there is, it came in 2001, 2012. Totally unrelated to any cycles in Australia's economic prosperity, the anxiety of its citizens. Identity, migration-related concerns are totally autonomous to economic anxiety. Every study you want to look at basically shows this. Um, and then the argument that numbers are down. But this doesn't acknowledge why they're down. They're down because of a whole load of measures that are either egregiously awful, like Italy, or have some pluses but are implemented very badly, like the, the EU-Turkey statement. Lift either of those two and replace them with what NGOs are calling for, and it's hard to see why numbers wouldn't rise again in a way that would trigger again uh, a, a, a visceral Orban-Salvini-style uh, reaction. So those are three kind of strategic reasons based on an analysis of the political lie of the land that make compromise. We don't need to compromise because these things will come to our rescue. But even if you go, okay, no, I accept all these things are true, still there's an ideological resistance to, to compromise. And this, I think, turns on an idea of the role of a humanitarian organization, the role of a human rights advocate. And this says that that role is to be the moral outlier. We keep the ceiling high. That is our role, even if we cannot get what we want. It is our role to stand for this core set of moral principles. We must bear moral witness, and we must not compromise simply because we can't get what we want. And I think this is wrong. Or rather, I think this is almost always right but it is sometimes wrong. Uh, and I think it's wrong very specifically in relation to the um, uh, migration crisis. Um, I, I want to try and unpack very quickly why I think uh, uh, the idealists of our time have, have ended up in this situation with this vision of their role. Partly it's because it's been very successful to date with this very idealistic um, uh, attitude. It's feasted on 60, 70 years of almost unstoppable success, happily. Uh, 
So I think, well, it's always worked, so let's stick with it. But there are more interesting reasons. I think there are psychological reasons. Compromise on deeply held moral intuitions is just difficult psychologically. You know, the idea that a, a, a refugee fleeing persecution or an economic migrant fleeing poverty, that you would distinguish in some way between these two, when from the perspective of that individual, the prospect of return is equally grim. You know, that's a pretty decent, good, dare I say it, even the right human reaction to have. Compromising on that feels wrong. I think there's another element of the psychological pressure, which is psychological reluctance, which is a peer pressure argument that everyone's wandering around looking over their shoulders going, shit, do they think that I've sold out? Uh, I think that plays its part as well. Uh, there are quite profound conceptual reasons, particularly for rights advocates, why compromise is difficult. And this is related to the structure. I mean, what, what a right is supposed to be. These are inalienable universal things that are had by all people for all time. They are all equal. They all matter equally. So when I was talking before, this need to be able to distinguish between the core and the periphery, that's not very straightforward for a human rights advocate. And I have a lot of sympathy for, 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 for that. Um, there's a, I think there are certain organizational reasons why compromise comes with a high risk for, for humanitarian organizations, human rights organizations, I should know. Uh, and, and, and that is they are professional idealists. And I do not mean this in a cynical sense. But the whole, you are selling idealism. The base, the funding comes from an idealistic support. So you've got to be damn sure that if you compromise on that, you're getting something in return. Because it is high risk to compromise, alienate a base, and get nothing back for it. You know, that's, that's difficult. So I, I, I say that not to point to cynicism, but to have genuine sympathy for the dilemmas of, 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 of organizations confronted with this. But then the last one is simply this idea that you know, uncompromising idealism is our job. Uh, and this has a, a strategic component. You know, if I lower the bar... I get even less than that. So my compromising, my reducing the things that I'm called for has a knock-on effect that makes things even worse. Uh, and, and I think that's again, does not apply in this situation. You're not negotiating with Orban and Salvini. You're trying to support liberal mainstream parties to shift them towards more humane policies than the status quo that they're already accepting. You're not negotiating with people. You're trying to help a democratic, rights-respecting, mainstream political establishment that has gravely lost its way. But okay, the last ideological, we just don't compromise. And then I go, but what if there is a core rights-preserving alternative that could be achieved if you backed it? Is it still right to refuse to do this because it involves some elements that you disagree with? What, moreover, if those policies didn't even violate any existing human rights norms at all? And my view is that in that situation, it is right to compromise. Not only is it right to compromise, it's wrong not to. Because behind every rights violation, there's a person 
And behind every rights violating policy, there are normally thousands of people. And in relation to migration crisis, there are tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of people. Real people. This isn't a debate just about ideas. This is about policies that affect people. And how do you influence policies that affect people? Not in small ways, but in huge ways. Whether you can get access to protection in a country, whether you get subjected to torture, whether you get stuck in a country where you're treated like the last dog on the planet. That's what's at stake here. So I come back to the migration debate. Do these policies exist? Core rights-preserving policies. Because I think this is the central challenge for the idealist activist. Is Are there policies that are humane but sellable that if you backed would preserve the core, the stuff that really matters, and your backing them would make a difference to achieving them. And what do these policies need to look like? They need to have the element of control. There must be meaningful control of external borders. They need to be able to distinguish between refugees and those who don't need protection, and they need to be able to return in significantly greater number those who do not have protection status. And then they would need to, and this is maybe you know, another controversial bit, need to reduce where possible and consistent with refugee law uh, and, and human rights requirements the number of refugees that come to Europe. So how can you create other spaces in which a refugee genuinely achieves, has access to the level of protection, uh, an acceptable level of protection, equivalent to, say, the reasons why you would not be able to return someone under a Dublin system from Germany to, to Greece. Um, so that's the, the, the control element. But then, if it's going to be humane, it has to do at least five things. It has to guarantee access to territory. It has to not return anyone to a place where their rights would not be respected. It has to provide for, for search and rescue such that no one is drowning in the sea trying to reach Europe. It has to ensure fair processing, processing of everyone arriving in Europe and humane conditions for those who are being held pending that determination. Right? Those are the five. Those are the core. These are the things that really matter. Now, what could do this? Does a policy that provides those core elements of control with those core elements of soul, do they exist? Control with soul. Can you do it? Now, I think you can. Uh, I think there's lots of devils and lots of details and I think it's incredibly difficult to do it so I don't present what I'm about to say glibly because I'm very mindful of how difficult it is to do things well that involve the things that I'm saying but I think it's possible uh, and I think they are conceptually rights compliant and then the question is in practice will they be uh, I think you need an EU solution just very quickly on the politics is finished uh, anyone who still harbors an illusion that the EU is somehow going to magically fix this with the divisions they all have, it's pie in the sky. Right? It is a total pie in the sky. But it does need a European solution. So then the question is, how do you get it? Well, you have to have a coalition of some states that excludes the ones that won't play ball, but still have an interest in trying to solve this problem. And what do they need to deliver? Censor, if you want someone to be rescued, the reinstatement of that whole paraphernalia of rescue, you have to change the system that they're being taken to to do all these other things. So then you have to have centers in which they're processed quickly, two months, three months, right to the end, including an appeal, 
many will, and again, many will balk at this, need to be detained. I don't want to mash my mash mash limo, as you say in English, even. Uh, use euphemisms. You will have restrictions on liberty whilst people are being processed. Not all, and with human rights exceptions. Uh, but many would need to be, because the alternative is what we saw for years. Italy, you go to Italy, you go to France, you go to Germany, you disappear. Uh, and why wouldn't you, frankly? Uh, so you need some sort of controlled center that have humane conditions, fast, fair proceedings, two, three months, return facilitated by uh, working readmission agreements with third countries, and the relocation, not of asylum seekers, and not through an obligatory EU mechanism, but the relocation of recognized refugees to countries that are participating in this scheme. So you would have France, Spain, Italy's out for now, uh, offer the reception center. Germany, Holland, Sweden, Denmark, the coalition, uh, offers to relocate a recognized refugee that they can move quickly to, 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 to integrate. This system involves three things that a rights universe does not like, and on most of them, they have pretty good reason not to like them. Detention. It's bloody difficult to do that well, right? It really is difficult. Um, more return that offends against a, a moral intuition uh, and quicker proceedings with less appeal right? obviously there are concerns that this affects the quality of proceedings the access to a fair process but all these things can be rights compliant okay? they all can be so what I'm suggesting in fact that a rights organizations, the humanitarian ones to the extent they overlap on this, compromise on, is not in fact human rights obligations at all. It is on moral intuitions and rights-based demands that exceed the current human rights requirements. And this is a really mistaken calculation. Uh, because it is surely right to compromise on these things to try and back a core rights-respecting system, if backing them will put enough pressure on governments and they see an interest in it to do something other than what they're doing right now and avoiding the narrowification of EU asylum policy. Uh, that, I think, must be right. Uh, I'll conclude with one final reflection on compromise, which is actually rights advocates have been compromising for years. And certainly humanitarian actors in the field do it on a daily basis. Right? They're always doing it. 100 vaccinations or one medical intervention, one operation. These are really difficult and complicated calculations. But rights advocates do it as well. They've been doing it. It's been the secret of their success for 70 years when they've been advancing the human rights framework. And it's gone, I want this, but okay, this is the core stuff that I can live with, that if I can back it and get that on the cards, get that on the statute books, create the mechanism that I want, I'll then work on the rest of it. 
So this idea of, of doing the necessary to get the essential, sacrificing the desirable to achieve the essential, has been a part of the human rights advocates' toolkit for, for decades. In fact, you can go back further. Uh, in 1789, in, in the spring of 1789, when the founding fathers were arguing about the adoption of a Bill of Rights, Jefferson wrote to Madison, Half a loaf is better than no bread. If we cannot secure all our rights, let us secure those we can. Half a loaf is better than no bread. Right? Now, the human rights advocates have been applying this logic in attack for decades, as I said. But then the question is in defense. Is half a loaf better than no bread when you have none to start with? It feels okay. But when you already have one, and someone's about to take it all away, still, I'd argue, half a loaf is better than no bread. The logic is exactly the same. Uh, and, and rights advocates should, should apply it. This kind of compromise is not a dirty compromise. It is the right thing to do. It has better human outcomes preserves the essence of what you want, so long as you're drawing a line somewhere. There are core rights that you never compromise on. I'm not inviting completely, you know, Benthian application of utilitarian principles. Um, that's, that's the right thing to do. The alternative, insisting on unsellable idealistic propositions, sounds like you're not sacrificing anything, but you are sacrificing something. You're sacrificing something deeply important if you are an activist. And that is your power to change something. The importance of your voice. If you believe in the importance of your voice and you're committed to changing something in the real world that has real consequences, then you have a moral responsibility. And that moral responsibility should lead you to accept compromise that will significantly improve people's lives and protect the things that you really care about. And I've spoken for far too long. Thank you for listening to the first part of Pragmatism versus Idealism. In the second part, you will hear a vivid discussion between John Dahlhuizen and two representatives of humanitarian organizations, Evelyn van Homburg of Oxfam Novib, and Ian Heenkamp of Stichting Vluchteling.